So the question for us this morning is, does he have the whole world in his hands? You see, because as long as life is easy and good and everything's going according to plan, sure, he has the whole world in his hands. But what about the family of the eight-year-old boy who died in the explosion at the Boston Marathon on Monday? What about the family now that's lost a son and has a little girl who has one leg? Do they say that God has the whole world in His hands? You see, tragedy and trial and evil and horrific events cause us to begin to ask questions. That if you have not come to the place in your life where you've asked the question, God, do you really have the whole world in your hands? Is this really the way that things are going to go? If you haven't asked that question, you will. You will. Because at some point in time, Life is going to deal you a blow that you were not prepared to receive. And you'll begin to question. You'll begin to wonder. You'll begin to think. You know, as I sat back and watched the events unfold this week on television, I kept hearing people say things like, I just don't understand how someone could do something so evil. I would hear phrases like the senselessness of it all and just the astonishment and the, the utter disbelief that someone would actually do that. I thought about all of the places in the world where bombs blow up almost every week. It's just part of life. There are places on this earth that when explosions go off, people just duck down and just keep on going. And are just grateful that they weren't standing next to the car or the person or in the crowd where it went off. It's just part of everyday life. Many of those places are filled with Christians. Who live day in and day out. In the reality of what when it happens here. It literally grinds us to a halt. And so we're astonished and flabbergasted and taken aback because what's really happened is is that the world that we have tried to recreate in our imagination comes crumbling down in the face of reality. That God actually created a world free of evil, free of death, free of pain, free of all of these things. But we long since left that world behind. And since Genesis chapter 3... Sin entered the world. God then in turn judged the earth because of the sin that man brought into this place. And no matter how hard we try to convince ourselves that this is a good world filled with good people who want to do good things, no matter where you live, no matter how careful you try to be, The reality is going to crumble your make-believe world. Because that is not where we live. The Scripture says in Romans chapter 8, 
before creation, it was subjected to futility or frustration, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That this earth has been judged. It is in frustration. That's why everything's working against us. That's why everything in nature is opposing what you're trying to do and what I'm trying to do. I mean, on a very simple, small scale, all you have to do is be coerced by your wife out into the yard to work in the flower beds. And you'll get real acquainted real quickly with the curse on the earth. One day it looks great, and the next day it's ruined, and it's a never-ending battle. It's working against us. That, that the, the, the weather is working against us. That everything is groaning in frustration because it's not as it was intended to be. And we're in the midst of that frustration ourselves. And so our response oftentimes is to say, well, you know, that just seems a bit extreme to me. I don't know if I want to believe in a God who is judgmental. I mean, I don't know if I want to believe in a God who who judges the earth because of one man's sin. I mean, something about all this just seems like God's a little bit overreacting. I mean, it just seems like, you know, as the Carnes kids were growing up in the Carnes house, that pretty much everything dad did and mom did, whatever the punishment was, it always seemed to be a bit more extreme than they thought the crime really deserved. And it's the same thing for us. We think God... And we ask questions like, well, God... Did, did you, did you cause this? God, did you allow this? Neither of those questions will answer the question you really want to ask. I mean, those are really a waste of time. The question is, God, who are you? What have you said? What's going on? Help me understand. And if you, maybe you're here this morning and and maybe you say, you know, I I just think that that's a bit harsh. And I, I just think that, I think a God that judges, a judgmental God is not a God for me. Then to you, I would merely ask this simple question. Why is it wrong? For someone to build a bomb, put it in a backpack, walk in a crowd of people, and then explode it? Why? Why is that wrong? And the very fact that we universally would all say that's wrong this morning sounds to me like we're a bit judgmental. Who said it's wrong? Who said those people were innocent? I mean, if we just want to be non-judgmental, then everything is permissible and everything is okay. The reason why we all know it's wrong is because we were created in the image of the just judgmental God that judges sin. That's why you know it's wrong. That's why when you watch the news, just like me, Rage comes up inside of you. And as we're watching the police surround this town and look for this fugitive, the reason why we're cheering for them to get him is because there's something inside of me and there's something inside of you that wants justice. And what that something is, is that you've been created in the image of a God who is holy and just. And He's a God of justice, which is why He must judge the earth for sin, because otherwise He would be a hypocrite. And so in light of that, 
What is God doing in response to this earth that's now judged in sin? That's the question we ought to be asking. Paul goes on in Romans 8. The next verse says this. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, that we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our body. The Scripture says that we groan inside for things to be right. For things to be the way they were intended to be, meant to be. That we all have this internal clock that's ticking towards some big event, some resolution, something that's going to set things correct, something that's going to fix the wrong. It's called the redemption of our bodies. It's the moment in time. When God comes to set the record straight. And again, He will come, as He has already, in justice and holiness. And He will do exactly what He has said He will do. And for some, it will be glorious and amazing beyond belief. And for others, it will be horrific and terrible beyond belief. So how does this God, this holy and just God who judges, how does He respond to the situation that we find ourselves in? Is God in heaven looking down at the events of the Boston Marathon, at the... at the the bewilderment of the United States as this plays out this week? Is God in heaven looking down upon us, fretting from His throne, unable to, to understand in His mind how such a tragedy could happen? Able to swoop down and prevent things like from happening, yet He doesn't? What's His response? Immediately after Genesis 3, immediately after sin enters the earth, God sets into motion His plan to fix the problem that we created. He immediately begins intervening. He immediately begins to set in motion that which we are right now in the midst of. So don't for a second think, that the God of the universe is sitting on a throne in heaven, frozen, idle, watching you and me suffer apart from any desire or plan or purpose to intervene. As much as my heart breaks for those who were Tragically and ultimately affected by what happened. As much as my heart grieves for what those parents and family members must feel. I also know that it cannot compare to the grief that the one who knit them together in their mother's womb must feel the one whom their reflection bears the one whom their very existence was spoken from his mouth what must he feel Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, you'll find that on page 1212 in the Pew Bible in front of you. 
I don't know how many times I've said this before and how many times I'll say this again, but it never ceases to amaze me in the providence of God. How I'll be meditating upon a scripture, thinking about and praying about, asking the Holy Spirit to give me insight and wisdom and understanding so I might preach on this text and look around me and the events of the world or the nation or my life or this church somehow seem to just all fit together in a strange supernatural way. Jesus, you'll remember, is talking to His disciples. It's late in Passion Week. He's just a few days from the cross. He's wrapping up His final uh, words on earth that He'll speak. He just finished His last public discourse and now He's sort of uh, instructing His uh, disciples here at the very end in these very critical last moments as He's planting the seeds that will no doubt be the freshest on their mind after He is crucified. As He rises from death to life and as He ascends to heaven to take His rightful place on the right hand of the throne of God the Father. Let's pray and ask God to help us today. Father, we thank You today for Your Word. God, we ask now that You'll give us wisdom from on high, that You will give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, that we might comprehend the glories that lie before us in Your perfect, infallible Word. Thank You for the gift that it is, Lord. Now, manifest it in our hearts that we might use what we hear today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Here's what we know. We know that just a few years after Jesus uh, was gone, that persecution against Christians was in full swing. That we have historical records of uh, as soon as 40 A.D., where Christians were being just brutally and gruesomely tortured. Uh, torturing Christians became... A sport. It became a public spectacle of uh, mass proportions. And no matter how many times I research and study, I still uncover every single time new gruesome ways that people devise to torture and take the lives of believers. I was reading this week from a Roman historian and uh, recording how Christians would be taken alive and stuck into leather sacks filled with poisonous snakes tied up and thrown into the river. We also know that by 70 A.D., the Romans in an act of force and power unseen before, rolled across the city of Jerusalem and they flattened it. They literally obliterated the city that once stood in such immense glory and such immense power and splendor was literally reduced to rubble. And so the very place that Jesus sits as He speaks these words in Luke chapter 21 is just a few decades from absolute obliteration. Luke 21, let's begin in verse 1 to get the full context. So Jesus looked up and He saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and He also saw a poor woman putting in two mites. And he said, truly, I say to you that this poor woman has put in more than all for all these put of their abundance. But she put in offerings for God out of her poverty. She put all the livelihood that she had. Then, as he spoke of the temple and how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see these days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another. They will all be thrown down. 
So they asked him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be? What sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said to them, Take heed that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near. Therefore, do not go after him. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. It will be, uh, it, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. They will, by some of you, will be put to death. And you will be hated by all my, by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience possesses your souls. We'll stop here for now. As if that wasn't enough. The disciples are listening to this and they're stunned. They're utterly taken aback. They're thinking they can't imagine a world without the temple. They can't imagine life Apart from the temple. The temple represents the very presence and splendor and glory of God. Jesus is sitting here talking about the destruction of the temple. And so to them, it must mean the destruction of the world. How could there be a world without a temple? I mean, this is the center of their universe. And they're listening to what he's saying. They're looking at Herod's temple now as he's speaking. Much has changed since the original temple construction. As glorious and as beautiful as it originally was, it had now morphed into something that was even more opulent and more elaborate. That, that Herod had just piled on the backs of all the other rulers and tried to build themselves a, an earthly sort of representation of their glorious kingship and power. The the historian Josephus, he said that the gold plates on Herod's temple would reflect the sun as it rose up in the mornings like rays of fire. That this building was so incredibly extravagant And Jesus had just a few days earlier went in and overturned the money table tables and run out those who were in there taking advantage of people. And in all of its extravagance and luster, it had become a den of thieves, not a house of prayer. I want you to notice that the disciples did not do something that we would think they obviously would do in this situation. It's interesting to me that the disciples don't question the fact that Jesus would do it. They don't say, wait a minute, Jesus, do you mean that temple right there? Are you talking about this temple, this city, this Jerusalem? They don't even question that. Their question is, when? That ought to tell us something about where the disciples are. Of all that they had seen, of the the, the corruption and the the wickedness, how religion had, had strayed so far from what it ought to be. That their only question is, Lord, when will these things happen? You see, even for them, 
they, they looked around at the suffering and the poverty and, and all the problems and they thought, well, this world has got to end soon. And so when Jesus starts talking about the temple coming to an end, they just know that's the end of the world. And they're thinking, well, when? When? They don't question, is that going to happen? They just want to know when. You know, if you continue reading, if you read through the Gospel of Luke and then you go right into Acts, which Luke also wrote, you just begin to read in Acts, it's almost like it's just a continuation of Luke chapter 21. By the time you get to Acts 3, Peter and John, now filled with the Holy Spirit, remember they heal the lame man at the uh, who, who was laying by the gate beautiful. And that causes all sorts of problems. And they're preaching the exclusive gospel of Jesus and Jesus alone that's, that's causing all sorts of problems. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, they're imprisoned. They're commanded not to speak the name of Jesus. The Scripture says in Acts 4.19, their response to the authorities as they stand before the authorities and the rulers... Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is just talking about? By the time you get to the sixth chapter of Acts, Stephen is being stoned to death for preaching the gospel. You go to chapter 12. James is martyred. From 13 to 28, you follow a sequence of the Apostle Paul being drugged from one persecution to the next, paraded in front of one ruler, one king from the next, over and over and over, exactly as Jesus is saying in Luke 21. But there's more. Look at verse 20. He goes on. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. Let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon his people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now you think about that for a moment and you think, now what in the world is God doing here? But you need to remember what Jesus has already said as we've worked our way through Luke. If you just back up a couple chapters of Luke 19, here's what the Scripture says in Luke 19, verse 41. Remember, right as Jesus is entering Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, Pastor Rod preached on this text. He's coming right in, riding on the back of a donkey. And what does he say in verse 41? Luke 19, 41. Now... As he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close in on you on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, he's merely just reiterating what he's already said. Remember the interaction in John chapter 4 when Jesus walks up to the woman in Samaria who's by the well. She's there in the middle of the day by herself. She's an outcast away from all the other uh, ladies who, of Samaria. She's you know, dirty and, and filthy and unclean. And, you know, she's lived with a bunch of different men and she's got all these problems. And Jesus engages her in conversation. He begins to, to talk with her. 
He says to her, he starts asking her questions about her, her family and her home. And she sort of starts answering. And then Jesus just fills in all the blanks. He says, I know all about you. I know all the husbands you've had and all the men you've been with and all the situations in your life. And in the midst of that interaction, here's what they say. The woman said to him, John chapter 4, verse 19, you can just listen. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Well, I mean, that's great considering the fact that he just told you everything about your life and he's never met you before. That would be the first indication that there's something strange going on. Just seems to me. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Now, this is important because we're talking about Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple. And so this conversation comes up about worship and where do you worship? And Jesus responds to her and says, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is pointing her towards, listen lady, you need to get off this geographical worship location. You need to understand that there's a new time coming when worship doesn't occur in a temple, but when people will actually be the temple. That the very person that you're having a conversation with at this well, who's telling you about living water, is about to accomplish something that is going to split the veil that separates you and everyone else from the holy of holies, from the top to the bottom, and now allow heaven out into the masses, into the people. That Gentiles like you and me would be indwelled by the very presence of God in our heart. That we're no longer in this temple worship structure or system. That things are about to change, though she had no way of really fully understanding what it is he was saying. But then Jesus is going to sh- kind of shift gears in, in Luke 21. He's going to begin in verse 25, sort of a, a dialogue with a different tone. Now, I want you to remember what he said back in verse 9. In Luke 21 verse 9, he said, for these things must come to pass first. Now, that's important. Because if these things must come to pass first, then that means that something is going to come to pass second. In fact, in uh, this same discourse, which is called the Olivet Discourse, the same uh, passage that we're studying right now is found in Mark chapter 13 and also in Matthew chapter 24. And when you read those other two accounts, you find uh, different information and extra things to help you understand. But the one of the interesting things that you'll find is when you look at Matthew's account in Matthew 24 verse 3, that when the disciples asked the question that we found here in Luke, and they said, well, when will these things be, Lord, Matthew records this, that the disciples said, tell us when will these things be and followed with this secondary question. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Which helps us understand why Jesus is giving this unbelievably long answer to this question, because he's answering more than one thing as he's going through this. And so notice what he says in verse 25. He says, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars and on the earth, distresses of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. 
You see that droning within us, that anticipation within us that that something big is coming, that some solution must be out there, that there's got to be some resolution. Well, the some resolution, the big thing that's coming is the return of Jesus Christ. And when he comes back, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and every question will be answered, every understanding will be gained. And trust me, those who are his and who know him will praise him and honor him and glorify him for the just and holy, perfect, loving God that he is. That all the way back in Genesis chapter three, he set in motion a plan to redeem the mess that we made. That there once was an earth, there once was a place where there was no sin. And he's going to return us to that place. Now, let's just recap a little bit about what we've seen in Luke 21. Because these are some very, very complex verses, if you allow them to be. But if you just back up a little bit and just read them for what they say and just listen Through the lens of who's speaking, I believe they can instruct us this morning about some very, very important things. I mean, scholars have argued about this text of Scripture for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, this, the Olivet Discourse is is the most studied text in the New Testament by scholars. For good reason. But let's don't overcomplicate it. Let's just... Say, now, Lord, I'm sure that every single person in this room can open their Bible and can read Luke chapter 21 and can glean wisdom from the Scripture. That you're not trying to hide yourself. You're not trying to get into some eschatological uh, dispensation about what he's trying to say here to get everybody all tangled up. What is he saying? Well, what is what does this mean to you and me? Well, if we recap, what we see is that Jesus here is speaking to his followers. He's speaking to his disciples. These are men that he loves. And what he says is the opposite of what we would want to hear. It's the opposite of what we would expect to hear. And so we're now kind of stuck in the dichotomy between this good, loving God who loves these men and has poured his life into them. But yet what he's saying seems to be sort of counter to that, that his values seem to be so utterly and completely different from the values that we would espouse, the values that we would uh, hope to hear from his mouth, that clearly his heart beats for different things than our heart beats. And that ought to create a little bit of problem in this room this morning. There ought to be some unrest in you in light of what is bearing down upon us. Because it seems to me that in verses 1 through 4, Jesus points out the fact that a widow risks risks everything that she has to give to God while the rich... Risk nothing. Then we see that in verse 8, he gives this command not to be deceived. That many are going to come in his name. They're going to pretend to be him and speak on his behalf. But don't believe them. Don't be deceived. Don't make up things about him because they make sense to you in your culture and in your understanding. Don't hear what you want to hear. But listen for the true shepherd to speak the true voice into your ears. And so he warns them, don't be deceived. People are going to try to convince you of things that are going to make a whole lot of logical sense, but they're not going to make any biblical sense. Then, in verse 9 through 11, he says, Oh, by the way, life is going to be excruciatingly hard. In fact, it's going to be scary. And so his 
His command to them in light of that truth is do not be terrified. Do not be afraid. Do not cower down in the midst of all this evil that's going to befall you. Why? Because he goes right into it in verses 12 through 17 that you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be rejected specifically for following me. That even those closest to you, even those in your family are going to reject you because you follow me. But in the midst of that, it's going to be an opportunity for you to bear witness of me. For you to speak up on my behalf. And so, don't overthink it. Just trust me. And then I'll give you the words that you need in the moment that you need them to bear witness to a lost and dying world for me. He says, some of you are going to die. In fact, most of you are going to die. In the context, Jesus is speaking directly. One by one by one, they're going to die. John's the one who's going to end up in the end, exiled to an island to die in loneliness and desolation. But they're systematically going to be murdered in all sorts of gruesome and horrible ways. But then in verse 18, notice what Jesus says. After all that, He says, but not a hair on your head will be lost. Now, that's got to be a place where, you know, the scribes must have made a mistake when they were writing that down. I mean, that's got to be an error. If ever there's an error in Scripture, it's got to be right there. How can, on one hand, Jesus say all the things He just said and then turn right around and say, oh, by the way, not a hair on your head is going to be lost. That word lost, it means uh, to, to perish to the degree to which it can never be restored or salvaged. It's the same exact word that's in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. Same word. And Jesus says, you will not perish. Not a hair on your head will perish. Oh, they may persecute you. In fact, they're going to kill some of you. But you won't perish. You don't need to fear. Because even the hair on your head is going to be protected. Now, isn't it interesting that the Bible seems to draw attention in the New Testament to the hairs on our head? I mean, that's just strange. I mean, what's what's God's fascination with our heads? I don't really know. But here's what I thought about. I thought about how many thousands of years did people read the Scripture and think, well, that's strange. And I'm sure that somewhere across history, I don't know of any uh, uh, confirmed truthful sources that would say this, but I'm sure it happened. I'm sure that somewhere across history, there was some fanatical group of whacked out weirdos who would say, you know, bald guy's got a problem. I mean, is Brian going to heaven? know that whenever the scripture rep, uh, references the hairs on our head, it's always in conjunction with another familiar statement. For example, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, verse 7, indeed, the very hairs on your head shall all be numbered. And his next statement is, therefore, do not fear. Do not fear. Because at some point in the future, technology is going to advance to the degree to where we're, we're then going to be able to actually identify each individual human being as being unique and one of a kind based upon this scientific miracle called DNA. And how will they determine your DNA? They will pluck a hair. From your head, they will find a, they'll take a hair and they can tell you everything there is to know about you from one of your hairs. Now, I know there's some of you in here and you're thinking, well, how can we find your DNA? 
Just look in his ear. There's DNA in there. But you see, everything, that's just disgusting. You know how you know you're getting old? I'll never forget. My wife's a hairdresser, so I can't even ever remember getting a haircut from anybody but my wife. And there's that one moment, that painful moment in your life when she's cutting your hair as she's done for 20 years. And suddenly she gets the scissors and she starts moving towards your eyeball. And you're like, whoa, what are you doing? And she's like, I got to trim your eyebrows. I'm like, my what? Well, what's happening here? Well, what are you talking about? And she's like, I don't know. Them things are going everywhere. And I'm like... What? Then the little clippers, instead of going around my ear, kind of... I'm just saying, DNA is happening. We got to get on tack. Back. He says, you don't have anything to fear. I got all the hairs on your head. I know every little... Thing about I'm the one that wrote your DNA code. I'm the one that created that. I know. And then he says this. He says in verse 19, he says, but by your patience, or you can write endurance. That's what that means. By your endurance, it's going to possess your souls. You're going to be, you're going to just be patient through all the suffering that you got to face. Just be patient. And then he comes behind all that. And he says, and I'm coming back. And when I come back, it's going to be in power and glory. That when I come back, the earth is going to do things like you've never seen. Oh, you think you've seen, you know, a little bit of global warming. You think you've seen a tsunami or a hurricane, but you hadn't seen anything until I come back. When I come back, you're not going to have to wonder, uh, did Mike Reeder warn us about this? You're not going to have to wonder that. Because you're going to see things you've never seen before. That planets are going to act in ways they never acted before. That everything is going to go completely undone as it is put all back together the way it was intended to be. And that's in the power and the glory that He's returning in. And so when we go back to where we started and we consider what the Scripture says in Romans 8 about us groaning in ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The question is not, where was God Monday at the Boston Marathon? The question is, who is God? And who is this God who judges sin? That the Scripture says in Revelation chapter 21, that this judgmental God, this God who seems to have overreacted and, and dropped the hammer a little too heavy on a people who really weren't, you know, that guilty, really didn't do anything that bad. I mean, God, was it really that bad? Revelation 21, the scripture says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's no more sea. Then I, John, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There be no more pain for the former things have passed away. For behold, from the throne, he says, I make all things new. That in Genesis 3, I began a plan of redemption. And you are in the midst of the plan. But do not be bewildered. Do not be dismayed. Do not be deceived. Do not lose your way, little flock. Understand that though you feel weak and vulnerable, you have power You have authority that I will give you the words that you boldly proclaim that which you know to be true from me, that you are my children. You've received the spirit of adoption and you will one day receive the fulfillment of that adoption, the redemption of your body. You will be with me face to face. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. That yes, 
Yes. The answer to the question, what's wrong with this world? Sin is wrong with this world. But what's God doing about it? He's doing everything about it. That's what He's doing about it. He's doing exactly what He said He would do. And as you prognosticate and pontificate about all the things that you would do differently if you were God. Just know this. That all the wrath and all the fury that is going to come in that day is going to be the pent up frustration and fury that is raging even now towards the wicked, evil nature of sin that continually day in and day out rips apart His glorious creation that He loves so much. So why, God? Why don't you just come today? Why don't you just come today? And he answers that question. He says, in the midst of all my agony and all my sorrow and all my suffering over what I have to endure and see, I wait patiently for every nation to hear the gospel. And so the question for you and me is not, what is all this going on around us? Why? Why are these horrible things happening? No, no. To ask that question is to miss the point. The point is, what are you doing in the meantime? The question is, is that while we're in the midst of, while we're in the between, while we're waiting for His return, He's given strict directives on what He's expecting to be accomplished. You see, this is where the room always gets silent. Is when we think about the master who gives his servants talents. He gives some a few and he gives some a bunch. And he says, I'm going away. And while I'm away, you take these talents and you invest them. Because I'm coming back and I'm going to take account of what you've done. And you know the story. The servant that is declared wicked is the one who merely takes what they've received, wraps it up in a handkerchief and buries it in the ground and does nothing with it. It's as if God said to you and to me, All of my children all over the globe are suffering in some way, shape, or form. Now, are we the ones that got just a few talents or are we the one that got the most? Let me ask you a question. Are the Christians this morning in Sudan the ones who got more than us? Are the Christians who are living in constant 24-hour fear of death that, that hide their Bibles wrapped up in newspaper and linen as they walk down the street in China so that they're not discovered? Are the Christians who live in the daily shadow of bombs exploding wherever people may gather, have they, are they the ones that have received so much? Or is it us? Are we the ones who have been given way more than we ever could have asked for? Now the question is, what are we doing with what we've been given? Is it going to be that God is going to return only to find that those whom He's left in charge of His house, those whom He said, hey, you, you are welcome to all the privileges of my home while I'm away. You, ma'am, sir, young person, 
You, you are welcome to live in my house. You can eat my food. You can treat it as if it's your own. And all I ask is that while I'm away, you mow the grass, you keep the place tidy. But most importantly, feed my dog. Because I love my dog. My dog is my best friend. And so you can have free use of anything. And yes, I just, I just want you to take care of it. But whatever you do, don't neglect my dog. How many American Christians are going to find themselves standing before the Lord? Saying, God, I kept your house clean. God, I made sure the bills were paid. God, I, 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 re- I put all the food back that I ate. God, I did this, I did this, I did this. And he's going to say, but you didn't do the most important thing I asked you to do. You didn't feed the dog. You didn't do the one thing I said, don't neglect to do. If there's anything you cannot neglect, it's the propagation of the gospel around the world. It's the propagation of the gospel in every tribe, in every tongue. That's the one thing you cannot neglect. And so maybe you did all these other things and whoop-de-doo, but you missed the main point. Let it not be us. May we be a people who say, God, I risked everything for you, for the gospel. I may not have done a whole lot of other things. But I knew you're coming back. And so I lived my life according to that belief. I'm not someone who says, oh, I believe he's coming back. But then you you live as if he's never going to check. As if he's never going to come. And look in the backyard and see what happened to his dog. As if he's just going to leave you there forever in his house. But he's not. He's coming back. And he's a just God who keeps account. And he doesn't always say what we want to hear. But I'm telling you what he says right here. The main thing is the main thing. I don't want to stand before my God and say, Lord, I did a lot of things, but I never did a thing to advance the kingdom. I stood before people with opportunities to open my mouth. I knew that you promised to give me the words, but I just stood silent. I knew that I had opportunities to give to advance the cause of Christ, But I built up my own barns. That I lived in my own luxury. That I heard the truth time and time again. But I just rejected it because I thought, well, no, it can't be that. It can't be that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is that. It is that we've been given more than any of us could have ever in a million years deserved. What in the world are we doing with it? We've got to get busy. We've got to press on. Because the king's coming home. And when he does, he's going to right all the wrongs. So if you, like me, sit before the TV, sick to your stomach by what you see, take the sickness that you feel and the image of God that's within you that's rebelling against that and say... Because of what that makes me feel like, I will do everything in my power to advance the gospel to every unreached people group on the face of the earth so the king will come home. That's what we got to do. And one by one by one we go. And 20 by 20 by 20 we send. And little by little by little we minister. In every home, in every community, and in every nation. 
the world was turned upside down by a handful of people. What can this group do? What? Who's here today to say, God is calling me to go? To go. He's calling me to go. To sell it all. And to leave. And to go plant my life and my family somewhere amongst people who don't know His gospel. Yes, it is scary. Yes, I may die. Yes, it may not work out great. But He's coming back. And that's what He commanded me to do. And I'm not afraid because not a hair on my head is going to be hurt. Or are we going to sit in our palaces? And do exactly the opposite of what he said to do. He's coming back. He's coming back. And I won't give account for you and you won't give account for me. All I'm saying is God bless Michael Memorial. May we rise to the challenge. May we have teenagers right now who are burning in their heart to give their life to the gospel. To preach the gospel around the world. To be pastors. To be missionaries. To be leaders. May we have people on fixed incomes who will will yet find another creative way to scrimp down so that they can put two more mites towards the war against darkness. May we be a people who will take seriously that which God has said. May it be so. May it be so. I believe with everything in me that right now this fellowship stands on the cusp of something great. Please, Lord, please, don't let us murmur in the tent. May we triumphantly walk across the river to the promised land. Let's stand, bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your, just your frankness and your, your truthfulness with us, Lord God. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift, Lord, of life in a peaceful, prosperous nation. A place where we know safety and security and provision. A place, Lord, where too often, rather than being grateful to You, we simply shield ourselves from the truth around us. Lord, thank You for this people right here today. And God, for the way in which they have exhibited a triumphant spirit to rise to that which You've called us to. Father, thank You for the ears in this room to hear and the desire to comprehend and to respond, Lord. Thank You for the hearts that are moved and touched Lord, thank you for what the Spirit of God can do. And so right now, in this very moment, Lord, there are men and women who, in their head, believe that you're coming back. But Lord God, I pray that through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, they would respond to the reality that you are coming back and you will set all things right. And in the meantime, we are called to be about your business. Lord, that the priority of our lives ought to be your priorities and that everything that we now possess is a gift from you and that you have unlimited Barns and storehouses that you own the cattle on a 
on every hill. So, Father, whatever the need is today, if someone does not know you as Lord and Savior, that right now in this moment they can receive life, the life that only you can give, that their lives can be reconciled to you right now, today. Father, I can't do that. Only you can do that. And so give them the courage to not be ashamed. To not be ashamed to respond to the God of the universe who's calling them unto Himself to say, Come unto Me. Receive the spirit of adoption. Know that whatever you may face, wherever you may go, no matter how bad it is, ultimately it's going to be okay. And we'll thank You for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. The altar's open. You come and kneel and pray before the Lord.